welcome to Sarcast, your monthly podcast hookup for the latest and greatest in evidence-based practice in physical therapy. I'm Matt Winkle, your host, and this month we're going to be talking about bum, 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 concussions. This is super, super uh, important, and obviously it's taken a bigger role in popular society with concussions being a bigger issue in sports. But obviously we're starting to see them in physical therapy clinics as well now. So uh, this is a topic that a lot of you have asked for and certainly one that we're excited to hit on. I am no expert in this field. We've gotten an expert in the field. Dr. Trey Rush is with us today. Say hi, Trey. Hey, guys. What's going on? And we still have Dr. Meredith Kaye, our resident fellow in training, who uh, will be running the, the show today. And I will be trying to stay out of the way and not mess anything up. To start off today, we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about what a concussion is and uh, how we initially screen for it. Most of our clinicians obviously aren't seeing this uh, concussed person right at the time of the event, but we may be seeing them in the clinic a day or several days later. So jumping into that uh, evaluatory process is really important. So Trey, if you can go ahead and start by just telling us a little bit about what a concussion is and then how you initially screen for these patients when they do come into your clinic. The first thing is the concussion is described as a neurometabolic crisis, which what does that mean? So basically you have an imbalance. So you need more nutrients, you're not getting enough, and you need more to repair. And something's messed up with the transportation system. So you need more you ha- and you have less transporting, which means suddenly you have less working it out for you. So that's why cognitive rest is so important right out of the gate. You can't use your brain as much because that will require more nutrients. That's why rest, they usually do a couple, a lot of docs now do like two weeks they're actually trying to get pulled back from that and go down to like a three to five day kind of thing. They've done studies with kids and they've rested them three days, they rested them five days, and the five days actually did worse in the long term than the three days. The, they're trying to bring back rest as much as we can, but it's still really important. They've also done studies on kids that have gone out and played and then they've gotten a concussion and they still kept playing and their recovery was way worse than those that got pulled out. So rest is important, but the question is, is how much? And that's still kind of a, nobody knows the answer to that one yet. So when you're saying rest, are you saying like sitting in a dark, quiet room by themselves? Or are you talking more getting out of sports? Or what does that entail? Both. The first one is cognitive rest. It's, it's like complete, total dark room. You're completely boxed away from the world. You're not thinking. You're not doing anything strenuous at all. Then, But you're obviously not in sports that whole time. So... There is a whole return to sport program that you want to complete before you go back to the sport, but the cognitive rest part is just dark room. Now the issue is, is most kids like it in the dark room because they don't get any symptoms, so, or adults even. And so the problem is, is, is coming out of the dark room. And that's usually where they need that jumpstart, that kick in the butt to really get geared into that next kind of phase. And so that's where you come in. Nobody wants to do the eye exercises, to do the motions that really make them sick, that make them dizzy. They give them these these bad symptoms, and that's what you're there for. The whole concussion program is based on exposed recover. So we want to give somebody a little bit of that uh, information, that feedback, and show them what they're missing out on. So we basically find something that they have a problem with. We take that spotlight of their brain and put it on that spot. And then their brain says, I don't want to look at this, and tries to pull away. And you take that spotlight and pull it right back on that. And you keep doing the exercise. And finally, the brain says, all right, I'll fix it. And then tries to move on to the next thing. We want it to be a gradual step. So if it's a little step, the brain can fix it, a little problem. If it's a huge step and you get a huge increase in symptoms, 
The brain's just gonna shake its hands, dust its hands off and say, I can't do anything about this and move on. And you're not gonna get better. So it's all about that gradual progression, but you have to get out of the dark room to get that exposure. It's all expose and recover. So we try and not only bring more exposure, but we also try and bring the recovery down. So we want you to spend less time in the dark room and then suddenly you're not resting at all in a dark room, you're resting in a well-lit room, busy environment, that kind of thing. That's kind of where you come in on slowly getting these people back up to regular life. So when you have one of these patients come in for their initial evaluation, obviously there could be a, a, a it sounds like a wide range in time that they've been arrested depending upon who their physician is. What are some tests or measures that you're using to evaluate where they're starting from in the initial evaluation? I almost always use the vestibular oculomotor screening tool. It's a pretty good catch-all, and it's a little based in subjective measurements, but in the beginning, they can't do a lot. So most of the time after a concussion, you have a lot of oculomotor and vestibular issues. And because those two are linked together, you can use the bombs to, to access these issues. So what's nice about this test is day one, you run through the six, seven tests, and by the time you get to the end, you know which ones they have problems with. Then you turn around and give those same exercises to them as their day one homework. And so if they have problems, you give them the exposed recover model and show them, what, show them what they need to do. So it's a really great one, especially when you're on a time crunch and you've got to really hit that and get them those exercises quick. And we can go ahead and post the bombs in the Twitter feed. And, you know, just like always, guys, make sure you're checking at CertCastCasey on Twitter. We'll post different visual models and any special tests or, or evaluation processes that uh, you guys can use for some of these patients. It's a great place to also interact with us. We love your tweets. So on the VOMS, there are several sections that you're going through with your patient, and you said that many of those things are subjective evaluations early on. Are there ways of making them objective as you move through the plan of care? Absolutely, Matt. I'm so glad you asked. Oh, good. <laughs> so um, first up is always the order is kind of important on this because they slowly get more and more intense. So as you get to more of the end tests, they're going to be really sick and really have a lot of issues. Generally, how I'll start is I'll say, okay, what's your baseline? So headache, 0 to 10, dizziness, 0 to 10, nausea, 0 to 10. Those are the big three. And then they write down their number on, or you, you get their numbers down on what their initial baseline is, and then you see how much they're going to increase with these new tests you're giving them. So, for example, smooth pursuit is basically the, the classic H test where you follow my finger, don't move your head kind of thing. Everybody's kind of done that one. But what you'll see with someone with uh, concussion is their eyes are bouncing or you're getting like some beating nystagmus off to the side. And so it's they're having a lot of difficulty. And then when they stop, suddenly dizziness at a 7 out of 10, headaches increasing, nausea, they need to stop and rest, and so I usually keep a handful of mints for this reason too. So if somebody comes up with those things, you say, okay, tell me your pain, and then you are your issues, symptoms, and then you say, okay, how long are they lasting? Are they coming down? And that's the recover. So once they've recovered, we go to the next test. So the next one is saccades. This is hold two popsicle sticks and look from one to the other as fast as you can 10 times. And what they'll notice is that the letters blur or the headache increases and same symptoms continue back and so you've got again their symptom measurement so these aren't these are basically subjective measurements so you don't really know what you're getting out of this generally on the first day I don't add a ton of objective stuff to these just because they're so sensitive there's not a lot you can do but later on what I'll do is I'll have them do these things to a metronome and so the clicking of the metronome you can get a speed down and you know exactly how fast they're going and you can actually watch progress and report progress 
The next one is a very interesting one, convergence. This is holding a pencil or a, the popsicle stick and bringing it to your nose until it doubles. When it doubles, that's what your measurement is, and that should be about six centimeters on a normal eye vision. That's basically when do your eyes meet each other and when do they start going past each other. And so if it's less than, if it's six, that's where you want. If it's greater than that, then you know that you have some sort of visual convergence issue, which is gonna make it hard to read. It's gonna make it basically hard to look at anything close up. If you have greater than 15, that means it's pretty significant. Now, if you, if you work with these patients for two weeks and that doesn't get below 15 or you don't know significance improvements, they probably need to see a, vis a visual therapist because it's probably something that's even more intense than typical. The next one on the list is uh, vestibular ocular reflex. This is if I'm looking at you and I turn my head to the left, my eyes turn as much as I turn to the left, turn to the right. So 30 degrees tur head turn to the left means 30 degrees I turn to the right. Sometimes you get a mismatch there. And that mismatch is always playing the eye playing catch up. And so that catch up, a lot of times people will feel like the pain behind their eyes or the headaches or the, the eye fatigue. And a lot of times I associate it with you stay up till two in the morning and now your eyes feel tired because they are tired. Your eyes have muscles in there that control the movement. If they're inefficient, they're gonna move five times more than they should. So you can have two AM eye fatigue at 10 in the morning. This is a really good one for measuring motion like they get, will get a lot, a lot of dizziness with this. They'll get a lot of headache. Symptoms will go through the roof, nausea, all, the whole thing. And then you, again, recover. So you can see how each of these is getting slowly worse. And we do each of these, and we want to make sure that we're testing both horizontal plane and vertical plane. So except for convergence, that's just straight on. Then the last on the bombs is the visual motion sensitivity test. I usually, I rarely ever test this on the initial eval because they're so sensitive that I know they have visual motion sensitivity. I don't need to test it. That's what you're looking for. Do you get dizzy? Well, we've already established that, so we don't need to worry about it. And that's the VOMS. Then what you do is they finish the whole thing, and you say, okay, now you had a ton of symptoms with this. You had a ton of symptoms with this. Here's your homework. And so usually when I give them homework, it's convergence, VOR times one to in horizontal plane, and saccades in horizontal plane. Occasionally, I'll add the smooth pursuits. It just depends on what they can handle but I won't have them do it at any timer. I want symptoms. That's the big thing people don't like to hear is that I get excited when they get symptoms. They're getting a headache, they're getting dizzy. Good, we're hitting what we need to hit. We're telling our patients that we are excited about their symptoms. How do you educate your patients? Because I have a feeling if I told my patients that I want them to get nauseous, they would not be on board with my plan of care. <laughs> what do you say to them to make them understand why we're doing this and how do you explain it to them? So I usually always go into that step, like that, you imagine that your brain has a big spotlight, that whole metaphor where you, you take that spotlight and you shine it directly on the spot where you have an issue. And so if your eyes are having trouble focusing on something too close to your nose, your eyes are having difficulty tracking something moving quickly, or if your head's turning and your eyes are mismatched, those are all things that your brain needs to see that something's wrong. Otherwise, your brain ignores it. It says, nothing's wrong, I'm fine, la 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 la, and doesn't worry about anything. But you have to take that spotlight and shine it on those spots that have issues. And we're doing it in a step progression. So I want symptoms, but you should recover from it. I want like a 1, 2, 3 increase out of 10, not a 7, 8, 9, 10, they're maxing out. That's not what I want. That doesn't help us. So we want small increments of increase. We don't want a huge flare-up. So that's, that's usually what I'll do. And once they understand that, the exposure is what's making them better, then they kind of buy into it a lot more. 
it's the same way we would educate a patient about a painful movement. You know, like it hurts to turn your head, so you haven't turned your head, but you need to functionally. So then we work on that and work into the pain. So it's the same education. It's just scarier symptoms to some of us orthopedic PTs that don't ever see this and don't really know what we're talking about. I think it's a really good point because this, I think, falls into a similar idea as graded exposure and some of the things we talk about with pain science. Uh, You're taking something that is symptom provoking, whether it's orthopedic or vestibular or concussion related, and you're saying, okay, let's break it into its parts, let's make it more manageable, and let's stimulate that X, but not to an insane degree, like you said, not to a 7, 8, or 9, but to a 1, 2, or 3. So I think think that plays. I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This has kind of started us on this little wheel, and, and when I say wheel, I, I mean that uh, uh, literally. There's this nice little diagram that we'll post on Twitter for you guys that shows the different clinical profiles that you might be dealing with if you have a patient uh, with a concussion. Uh, so we've started talking now about the vestibular components, uh, some of the ocular issues, but that's only two of the six that, that patients can present with, as I understand it. Um, so I think it would be really good to kind of go through these other things because you can see, it sounds like, different kinds of patients than just vestibular ocular patients. So, Trey, can you tell us a little bit more about this cognitive fatigue and the, um, that, that classification? Yeah, no problem. So when I went up to Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, they have developed this profile system that they use seven different profiles to categorize a concussion. Now, it's not that typically someone falls in one profile. There's usually multiple or even sometimes all profiles that someone falls into. The issue is usually that there is a limiting profile. So you can't address one profile because another one's too severe. So for example, this cognitive fatigue issue, if you're doing the eye exercises and they are so tired and exhausted they can't think, they can't do what you're trying to tell them to do because they just can't stay awake, that kind of thing, then you're, you're limited by your cognitive fatigue profile on top of the vestibular ocular ones, on top of any other issues that are going on, but that's a huge limiting factor. Now, cognitive fatigue is probably not the greatest example because that's a very a rarely rare one, so it, it doesn't happen quite as often. Now, usually you get someone that has like word displacement, they can't quite find the right word, or they're not as quick as they were, or they don't get a joke like they used to, or something along, along those lines. And so cognitive fatigue is very associated with just getting someone back into the game. We play memory. We do. Uh, we get them doing like learning a new task. So usually, if cognitive fatigue or issues, I usually will be like, okay, what's something you've always wanted to learn? And they'll say this, and I'll say, okay, go learn it, go do it. So kids to address cognitive fatigue, they go to school, and they stay in class. Like that's how you deal with it. And so the big issue is that you need to learn a task. You need to get those pathways firing. If you think about the brain as a massive superhighway of like just a map of every road in the entire city, if you have some sort of obstruction on a, or roadblock on one of the main highways, all that traffic has to go somewhere else, which is where your nutrients are going the wrong way. But if you travel those side roads enough, they become bigger, 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 and suddenly they're superhighways of their own. And so you have these new pathways that you can use faster and get those nutrients to where they need to go to make those repairs. So it's just the, again, exposure. Um, but you've got several different factors here. So we've already kind of covered vestibular and ocular. So they tend to go hand in hand. So a lot of ocular is more specific to like convergence, that kind of thing. Vestibular is more with head turns, head movements. Both of those, you'll see somebody with symptoms of, I hate busy environments. I can't handle the grocery store. Like if I go down and I read something on the, in an aisle, it's terrible. Or people can't walk around me. I can't sit in a busy room. Like those are the kind of things that both of those, like driving's terrible, that kind of stuff. Your visual motion sensitivity is through the roof. So those are usually 
VOMs, we start it with the VOMs and we can address it with that. A big limiting factor is post-traumatic migraine. Someone that's never had migraines before suddenly starts having a migraine. So a migraine, for anyone that doesn't know, is a pretty severe headache that a lot of times can have an ocular component like an aura or something like that, like you're seeing the electric light show and a, and a dull pounding uh, behind the eye a lot of times. So sometimes you can get like cervicogenic headaches, that kind of stuff that will tension migraines, that kind of stuff. So you can get several different causes of migraine, but usually what happens after the migraine is your entire function is down. So you're not going to perform like you did the day before the migraine. It's going to take you a little while to recover from that. So it's a huge step back and somebody that's getting them constantly is going to really hamper any kind of progress you can make. So that's a huge limiting profile. And sadly, unless it's like a cervical component that you can address or it's an ocular component that you can address, then it's good. they're going to need some sort of medication to overcome it. That's something that might be out of our hands. But migraine and loss of sleep are two of the biggest barriers to rehab and recovery. Uh, anxiety and mood can be another one that you can also, mood especially can limit if somebody's just really discouraged, that kind of thing, or they're really, they have a lot of emotional ability. I've had a ton of concussion patients initially come in and they just start crying because they're more irritable. They're snapping at their family for no reason. And they're, they're like, I don't know why I'm crying. This is ridiculous. Those patients basically need to exercise. I will put those patients on the bike if they can handle it. A lot of times you have to do some exertion testing with them to see what they can do, but we get them walking, do on a walking program right out of the gate. The more you can get them exercises, the more they can overcome that anxiety and mood. But that's usually, I will put those people on the bike until they feel better, unless it's like they can't do exertion. And you're going to notice when you start exertion on a recumbent bike even, they will do 30 seconds and feel like they need to throw up. So it's just a little bit of exertion is, goes a long way. For those of us who maybe are not quite as versed, why is there such a strong correlation between uh, utilization of cardio activities and patients who are presenting with this anxiety and mood limitation? Why is that such a go-to for you? Great question, Matt. I'm so glad you asked. From what I understand, it has a lot to do with mood. So if you're exercising, you feel better. And these people have been in a dark room for a long period of time on rest and recovery. They haven't gotten out. They're afraid of going out. They're afraid of going, walking down the street. They haven't done anything. They haven't been outside. So just getting them out and moving around is going to make huge amounts of improvement. Imagine being locked up in a room, laying in bed for three days in the dark. What You might be able to watch TV if it doesn't make you sick. I've had people that couldn't watch action shows, so they watched the Hallmark Channel for three days. <laughs> so... Imagine being in that situation for the three days. You're going to get stir crazy, and you're gonna your mood's going to be affected. You don't even have a concussion. I think uh, uh, something that I'll say your non-vestibular certified therapists really struggle struggle with is progression of those vestibular ocular exercises. You know, we kind of learned saccades somewhere back in PT school, somewhere in the back of our mind, but we don't really know how to make that harder or how to progress that into. Say you have a kid trying to get back to sport. You know, how do you how do you do that? The most basic way to progress any of the VOMS exercises that you get for homework is you start them in seated, then you move them to standing, then you move them to uh, walking or tandem walking or standing on foam. So you can change the proprioceptive input. So if you imagine balance as three outfielders that each covers different sections of the field, you have your, your vision, your visual component, which covers that section of the field. So this is, I look around the room, I know where I am in space because I, I can see you. You have your vestibular component, which covers, I, I like to call that one center field because it's kind of in the middle. 
That's more of your like, you have these three levels on each side of your head that control, uh, that tell you how much you're turning, how fast you're turning, all of these things. If Do you have a lean? All of that is vestibular controlled. And then you have proprioceptive. That's like your balance. You're walking through the house in the middle of the night. The more wall you touch, the, more, the better your balance is. So those are all things I will explain to a patient as your three balance pillars. So if you can challenge any of those three pillars in any way in combination with one of the others, you've progressed it. The seated to standing to foam to walking, all proprioceptive. I didn't, do, didn't change vision, didn't change vestibular at all. You can add a busy background in the background of them. Suddenly that changes a vestibular distract or a visual distraction. So you've, we've upgraded visual. Vestibular, you increase speed. You make them, you crank the, the rate up a little bit more. That's gonna increase the vestibular. So if you keep those three pillars in mind, you, you can have any kind of creativity with, that you want, but just think, what am I trying to progress here? Are they really good because their proprioception is so good? Are they really good because their vision is so good? So usually after concussion, their proprioception is still pretty good. So try and get rid of it. On foam, walking, tandem stance, whatever, get rid of that proprioception and they have to rely on vision and uh, vestibular. Some other options are, I like to do on the VORs with the head turns, I like to add reading. So suddenly they have to read and then that once they get to where they can read without throwing up, I have to get, they have to comprehend what they read. So the cognition component of that is its own its own ball game. And you can add that cognition to any kind of exercise, like they're tandem walking and you start asking them trivia questions and they're getting frustrated at you and yelling. And you're saying, yeah, you shouldn't be yelling. This is, these are name a state that borders is on the Pacific. And they're getting mad at you for asking them a simple question like that. And so you can suddenly add cognition and that's another profile that you've just thrown into the mix to complicate their treatment. And then I also add heart charts, H-A-R-T. These are basically like word search. They look, they're like big blown up word searches and they're exactly the same. You get two of them, you hold them out like you were doing saccades, but then they have to read every other letter as they go back and forth. So you're not looking at the same letter, you're looking, you have to be able to find your place and move the correct increment forward. So I got kind of excited for a second because I've felt lost for about 20 minutes now and you said the word cervical and cervicogenic headaches and I felt like I was back at home for just a small moment. So I'm just going to derail this whole thing for a moment. When can I start doing the things that I know how to do? So I guess my question moreover is we have these patients coming in. Maybe they've had their three days of rest. Maybe they haven't. Maybe we're going through an evaluation. We've given them vestibular stuff, but they have cervical components because there was a whiplash involved in their concussion, right? When can I start treating these orthopedic components? Is it safe to do out of the gate? What kind of markers do you look for before you start adding in orthopedic treatment? So here's an important piece, I think, is when you get a concussion, you don't have to hit your head. You can have a severe whiplash and you can get a coup contra coup concussion, without even touching your head at all. So a lot of times I'll see patients right after a car accident or something and they are exhibiting concussion symptoms. So I'll do a VOMS on them and they'll test positive with a lot of things. A lot of that is questionable on, do they have cervicogenic dizziness or is it an ocular component? Is it a vestibular? So I think it's very important to tease out on a cervicogenic dizziness patient if this is truly cervicogenic dizziness or if it's more of a concussion-like symptoms. So I, I was looking over a lot of cervicogenic research too, and they don't mention any kind of ocular screen. And so I think that might be a good component to look into as well. But as far as are you good to do orthopedic stuff, yeah. You're gonna notice, things that you're gonna notice them having issues with are quick head turns. 
I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have, I'd avoid any kind of really quick motion with the head or neck for that matter. And it's not necessarily because of the neck, it's because they can't handle it and they're gonna get sick on you. But any other orthopedic issue shouldn't be a severe limitation besides just that movement disorder. Now you might notice some issues with getting them down into the supine, rolling over, sitting up, those kind of things like the quick motions. You're gonna have to be slower in the beginning especially. But what are you doing? You're exposing them. The more they can get exposed to, the faster they're gonna get better as long as it's manageable. So if you can get your orthopedic treatments in more of a expose, like a controlled exposure rather than that through the roof, 9, 10, dizziness, nausea, whatever, yeah, you're, you're good to do whatever. You mentioned at the very beginning, you could kind of framed it when we were talking about concussions as with kids. I think we think about a lot of times concussions being associated with sports. Uh, and so a lot of times we're dealing with younger people. Um, and sometimes they're over 18 and sometimes they're not. And so that brings that parent component in. And then also, even if they are over 18, we're dealing with people who are not really adults yet. What are some ways that you communicate with athletes' parents about when they can return to sport? How do you communicate with the athlete themselves about the process? Do you give them a lot of education up front and lay out the timeline? Do you not? Kind of just your general process with this. Okay, so this can be a pretty broad category a little bit. First of all, I'm going to mention CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, because everybody, every parent is going to bring this up. Like, is, does my kid have CTE now that they've had one concussion? Right. No. If you look at the research for the CTE and all of this big scare, they took a sample population of the NFL that might have some sort of brain injury following later in their career in retirement, and they, they did an autopsy of their brain. And they had like 90, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like 90% of these, this, these players had concussions or they had CTE and the extra plaque on the brain that might have caused, you know, all these dementia and all these other factors. They did at-risk people when they did this test. They didn't do every NFL player from those years. So first of all, you need to downplay how scary this is, that if because you play football doesn't mean you're going to have a brain injury and you're going to have this chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's not that cut and dry. These are people that probably had a lot of concussions. They probably ended up doing a lot, and they were very noticeable change with their family, with them later on in life that they weren't the same before they went into football. Now, with that being said, the typical causes for CTE are repeated concussions without appropriate time to heal. What they've done the research on is that the more you have, you have a concussion, you build these little plaques in the brain and your brain will clear them with enough time. When your brain clears them, you get another concussion, you get new plaques, your brain clears them. And that there's certain, there's eventually your brain gets less and less efficient at clearing them, but they will eventually clear them as long as you don't get another concussion. However, if you get a concussion, you get these plaques and you get another concussion, it's like those kind of linger and they don't, you don't quite clear them. It's like you start from a new spot and then you clear up to that point, but you, you may or you may not clear those first ones. So these people that are having repeated head trauma, these helmet to helmet collisions over and over and over, they might be getting a concussion and they're like, hey, I get this all the time. The little, little vision issues, it's no big deal. And they get it over and over. Those, those don't have those chances to clear and suddenly they have the issues. So first of all, you're gonna have that CTE conversation. Parents are gonna bring it up. And so it's important to downplay, one, how common it is, and two, the real cause of it. So if you mention that as long as they heal appropriately, the risk is way down. And there still needs to be a lot of research done on this to get more conclusive evidence one way or the other, but that's neither here nor there. 
the next thing you want to consider is when are they ready to go back? So the big issue here is you might be able to get one of these kids and they can go run and they don't have, or they can go walk or play for five, 10 minutes and don't have any issues. But a full game is like, depending on the sport and soccer specifically, it's 90 minutes of running and there's collisions and there's side turning and there's, there's hard hits and that kind of stuff with the head balls and all of that. You want to make sure that you're clear to do these things first. So this kid might be able to run 10 minutes, but can they run the full 90? So just running, if you have a track star just running, they can go and run a 5K and be terrible for two weeks rather than making sure that they were cleared for it. So you want to do some exertion tests, that kind of thing, to double check and make sure that they're okay to do these things. You also want to slowly provide some sort of impact training as well, like the running, or if they're a football player, you want to kind of mimic any kind of non-head specific stuff. But you want to make sure that they're clear with that, and you want to look for symptoms of headache, irritability, that's the big one with kids. They don't want it. They just are, their parents will say they're really irritable. That's still a symptom. So they may be hiding from you on these these vision issues or these dizziness or anything like that. But their parents notice if they're still irritable. So you can use that as a good litmus test. Okay. So with any injury in physical therapy, a lot of times we're getting to the end of our plan of care and the conversation we're having with our patients is how do we prevent this from being an issue in the future with a myriad of orthopedic and non-orthopedic traumas? This is especially the case with concussions, I assume, that we want to try to prevent this from being a future issue. So what are we doing with these patients as far as educating them and providing them structure to prevent this from being another future issue? The best I can do is tell you the goal, and then as the orthopedic group, I'm going to hand this off to you guys, because if you come up with some really good programs that we can utilize in more of our concussions, then I think that this will be actually a good mutual benefit. Basically, the biggest way to prevent a concussion is to have improved cervical strength. So the stronger your neck is, the less likely you're going to get boxed around. Typically, the whip or the rotational acceleration of the head is what causes the concussion. So it may not necessarily be the bang in the head, but it may be the resulting acceleration and whip of the head. So it's that brain banging to one side. If you think about your brain as jelly, it's not a pretty picture. So the stronger your neck is, the more resistant you are to any kind of force that's throwing you around. So in this case, the more you can strengthen the neck, chin tucks, all of that whole works. I've put some people on a TheraBand and I've just walked circles with pulling and perturbations and just trying to get them to strengthen as much as they can on that neck before we send them back to do things. If you think about somebody, let's say a middle school girl that wants to go out and head the ball in soccer, think about how much force a middle school girl can kick a soccer ball and then she has to absorb that head, that ball with her head and change the direction of it, which means she has to be stronger than the hit. So if you think about that much force required, their neck has to be at least that strong. So if they can't, if their neck is lacking that strength, then they're going to have a lot more of, they're going to absorb that with more of that whip back, and they're going to be much more likely to get a whipped head. This is also the one time that I do sit-ups with patients. I'll put a band around their head, and then they have to slowly do an eccentric sit-up. And so this is more to mimic those people like basketball players that tend to fall down on the court from a, up high, and then they have to be able to protect them, their head as they land. So that's the, that's the most functional sit-up that you can probably do, that I can think of, to protect you from falling down backwards and hitting your head most of the time if you fall too hard. But again, it's that eccentric control and they're holding the strap around their neck and around the top of their head. So they have that 
that net control as well as they do it. Obviously, Trey has taught us all a lot of things that we hadn't even considered with this patient population. So I guess the big take home for me from this discussion is that if you have a vestibular certified therapist, somebody who's really good at this, they should obviously be treating this patient if they walk into your clinic. Knowing how to screen them and kind of get you the vital information that you would need and then sending them your way as much as possible. But I also feel better. Personally, I'm in a clinic where it's kind of in a small town that people don't like to leave their 10-mile radius. So I feel a little better at least trying to do some of it on my own and using somebody like you for guidance. But I think first line of defense is always try to get it to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And one of the things, too, is my the clinician that I work with and I have, we, we've been partnering up on this. And so I usually take the patients that are more acute, that are right out of the rest stage, that are we're just trying to facilitate movement. And she's more of, uh, takes the sportier ones, the return, like the return to work, return to sport. So she's doing higher level things. And the higher level ones are a lot easier to handle if you kind of know the progressions, if you're doing visual, if you're doing proprioception, and uh, you're doing vestibular. So as long as you're progressing those three, you can add running, you can add agility ladder. I've done agility with people trying to read something behind a moving umbrella, a striped umbrella. So, I mean, you can make this as intense as you want, but we kind of had a good working relationship where I will take the really intense, really cute ones and she will actually do more of the sporty ones. So sometimes what you can do is if you get somebody that's really severe and you just can't make it over that, you can refer them out to somebody that, like a vestibular therapist that will get them over the vestibular component to it and you can bring them back to the return to sport. So I think that's a good lead in to everyone's home exercise program for, for this week. There's a couple things that I think would be great for everyone to do. First, I want everyone to check out the Twitter feed. We're going to be posting the VOMs on there. And, you know, when you get these patients in your clinic, you're going to need to at least do that initial screen, that initial assessment. And this is a great place to start with. I mean, it can give really good information not only for you, but if you do refer out, it can give great information to that vestibular therapist who's going to take them over uh, from there on out. Uh, the second thing that we want you to do is we want you to look in your community within the CERC community or if you're not with our company in the greater Kansas City area for somebody who is vestibular certified. You should have someone in your back pocket from the very beginning so that if someone like this comes in, you know exactly where to send them. Um, so those are your two things to homework this week. Like always, we appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Make sure you hit us up at the at CERCCastKC Twitter feed for any feedback and to check out the different visual stuff that we'll be posting. We'd love to thank Dr. Trey Rush for joining us today and giving us so much great information. We'll be back next month with a new episode. Until then, keep it real. Thank you.